Hi, everybody. George Belsky along with Keith Gagliardi here for episode 23 of the RF Factor. Joining us is Joe Sullivan, uh, retired deputy police commissioner from the Philadelphia Police Department, now with Lawman Supply. Uh, Joe, welcome. Um, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Pete, do you want to start us off? Because I've got a bunch of questions when I'm going to give you on the West Coast uh, the first shot. Yeah, you know, because we're a little behind the times here. <laughs> <laughs> About three hours worth. But, um, hi, Joe. How are you? Good, good. How are you, good. sir? Very well, very well. So, Joe, you know, you have an impressive resume, and I don't know where to start. I mean, you've done every job in the Philadelphia Police Department from 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 the bottom all the way to the top. So. Oh, I do have a couple of questions. Um, you were you were leading the the strategic implementation of of um, pinpoint an evidence led uh, uh, initiative focused on gun violence. Maybe you could give us the four one one on that. Yeah, it was it was uh, data data led intelligence driven, uh, where we we worked very closely with the. The, the Delaware Valley Intelligence Center, uh, which is our part of which of which our real time crime center is a part of. And we utilize the, the strict analysis of, of data and the gathering of intelligence, human intelligence, as as well as intelligence from social media to identify conflicts so that we could make very informed decisions about where we deployed limited resources. And uh, we, we saw a lot of success with that. Um, violent crime is, is, is what was and continues to be a problem in a city like Philadelphia. But I, I believe that, uh, that, that that initiative, which was um, authored by and um, led by Commissioner Ross, was, was quite successful. And I, and I think that uh, statistics would, would prove that out. But um, it was a very focused strategy keeping in mind the importance of not alienating communities, especially communities of color, um, and focusing on those persons that were responsible, that very small number of people that were responsible for an inordinate amount of violent crime. So you were targeting, you were targeting the right people for the right reasons, right? The right people, the right groups, at the right places, at the right times, and targeting the right behaviors that were driving or contributing, contributing to the violent crime. And that could be a problem bar, uh, a problem business that meant addressing abandoned autos, uh, ab abandoned lots, um, abandoned houses, looking at the environmental factors that were contributing to crime, paying attention to community complaints um, and prioritizing those community complaints. And of course, looking at narcotics, knowing that narcotics is a driver of violent crime but understanding that you had to be realistic with your resources. So we focused on those uh, drug organizations, those drug trafficking, trafficking organizations that were contributing most to the violence, that were contributing most to the overdose problem and were the largest source of community complaints so that we were, uh, we were targeting them um, based on a, on a, uh, a prioritized system. Uh, and trying to have the, the maximum impact. A couple more, couple more questions on, you know, George, George and I, um, 
come from ATF and, and, and we know that you know a lot of our colleagues and you've worked closely with them, especially on this, this particular uh, initiative. Uh, in terms of the firearms themselves, you know, like, and, and I, I noticed that you were, uh, you, you were heavily involved in um, uh, uh, the investigation of uh, explosive devices and post blast and all that. And just like we start a post blast investigation from the seat of the blast and sort of work out in concentric circles, um, some of us in the crime gun intelligence area view view the firearm itself as a similar seed of the blast, if you would, or seed of the crime. But if we start with the gun or the uh, fired evidence found at the crime scene, and we start working out from there in concentric forensic circles, we could start to pick up a lot of crime gun intelligence. So what types of crime gun intelligence from the, from the firearms, and maybe you could talk, tell us where you were getting the firearms and how you were going about that on um, the illegal firearms and then talk about responding to shootings themselves and collecting various pieces of evidence and crime gun intelligence from the shootings. Oh, well, there's, there's, there's absolutely no, no two ways about it. The, the examination of firearms that were taken from crime scenes, taken from persons that were carrying them illegally uh, tells a story. And it gives you an idea of just how many individual shooting incidents each of these guns are involved in. And the other telling thing was always you, you could you could see when there was a decision that a gun had become too hot. And you could tell it had been sold on the street because ballistics from that gun would show up at a, at a, at a shooting scene in another part of the city. Um, but. The, that trace analysis that ATF uh, did in concert with the police department and the money that ATF supplied the city to hire additional examiners, examiners, firearms examiners, was, was truly, ballisticians, was truly invaluable and really uh, enabled our detectives working together with ATF and the agents to um, link up multiple shootings, identify the persons or the groups that were involved. And that information, that intelligence and that, uh, enables you not only to make arrests, and sometimes it does enable, does not enable you to make an arrest, but it enables you to deploy accordingly. And, and as I sp spoke to in the first question, make sure that we're targeting the right people and the right groups and, and, and we're at the right place. And when you take that and you combine that with the intelligence you're gathering on social media, the, the intelligence you're gathering on the street from human sources of information, and you put that all together, you're able to have a very focused strategy, but the analysis of, of FCCs, the analysis of, of guns that, that, were, that have been seized um, truly tells you a story and really enables you to make wise choices in, in, in terms of prosecution, in the terms of who you target and where you target. Now, were you, were you, was your operation, uh, were you getting submissions of, of uh, firearms that were seized and evidence seized from s surrounding towns and cities to Philly? Was this, was this a regional type of type of operation or was it just focused within the city limits of Philadelphia? It was really focused within the city limits of Philadelphia. And, and I've got to tell you, I mean, the amount of intelligence that uh, this, this joint initiative between the ATF and the PPD was generating, 
I, I, I don't I, I, I don't want to say we, we didn't ever uh, go outside the boundary. Sometimes the evidence would take us out. But for the most most part, we had our hands full just dealing with the reams of valuable data intelligence that was, be gen- that was being generated for, uh, regarding incidents that were happening inside the city of Philadelphia. But again, um, when there was a connection outside, that, 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 that was a, a perfect example of just how critical the analysis of all ballistic evidence is, because often it would take us outside the city and we might have an arrest for a shooting that happened inside the city. And then when that those results came back, we were able to share that information with our partners. And uh, that one Upper Darby comes to mind. Uh, Southwest Detectives was able to work with Upper Darby and share information, or vice versa. And then um, we charge the shooter with an with an additional crime. And we all know how that how important that is, and how important it is to get shooters off the street. Uh, to build solid cases, to keep them off the street, and then to make sure that when they're convicted, they receive the the maximum mandatory sentences. That, that's that's how you reduce violence. So as we see more and more police departments going to uh, an evidence-led approach, you know, an, uh, uh, an intelligence-led investigation, the the problems we have today aren't necessarily that we don't have enough information. We have too much information. How, how did you guys handle all this additional information? You mentioned you were over, almost overwhelmed with new intelligence. How do you manage that uh, physically to generate action from that? Yeah, you do it in two ways. Um, and, and it's very important that we maximize civilian station. You know, we, we had some incredible analysts down at the Divic in, in Philadelphia. And these were, were young, very highly educated people. Um, who wanted to be in, in policing, but but as we know, not everyone has to carry a gun to be an important part of the team. And and they were just in, in, incredible members of the team. And their ability to take in, in these reams of information and reduce them down into manageable and, and useful products that, that could be implemented was, was, was incredibly important. It's also incredibly important that you get your detectives the training that they need, that you send them out and, and that you develop those skills. With so many of our detectives, especially the younger ones, were really um, so impressive in the way they use technology, um, in, 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 which included the, the, the data we were getting from the ATF. I think that's why in, today, you know, any major city that doesn't have a crime gun intelligence center in, in partnership with ATF is um, really behind the times and, and doing itself a, a disservice. But it, it certainly is maximize civilianization and maximize the training of, of the officers that you have. And it's something you could should be considering in recruitment. Um, you know, we talk about what the importance of education, and I do think it's important. But, you know, that doesn't mean it has to be a, a, a bachelor's degree. And we have young men and women coming out of the military, and young men and women that are going to trade schools that really bring an awful lot to the table and we, we need to consider that and and implement that in into our into our uh, our plan good point joe uh here at the rf factor the, the rf stands for relentless follow-up and so let me let me premise this question with um i know that police departments in general and then uh different divisions and branches with inside uh the department can uh, like to silo off their information, right? Knowledge is power. So the more knowledge I have, the more power I have. How did 
Philly PD go about uh, implementing this share, not just within the agency? It's, it's one thing for, you know, the gang guys to share with narcotics, to share with homicide, to share with robbery uh, and auto theft and patrol, uh, but to also share across uh, agency boundaries. So you're sharing with the state police, you're sharing with ATF, uh, you're sharing with uh, with your other local partners. What what did Philadelphia do uh, to to put that impetus in place and then keep it there, or was that something that was that was just there? It was organic. Well, it begins with leadership. It begins with you sending the message that this is what you expect, and it and it's you as as a leader working closely with your colleagues from other agencies. So for us. Um, as I said, we had the Delaware Valley Intelligence Center and, and, and someone had early in our, in our pregame warm up, someone had mentioned Doug Barrick from the state police, you know, a perfect example. You know, I, I got many of calls from Doug at late at night on the weekends because something came across their radar that impacted Philadelphia um, and, and our DIVIC working hand in hand with PASIC, working all hand in hand with the Jersey Rock. I mean, in critical part of, of, you know, the solution to that problem. Um, and, th- and that's externally. Um, you know, I was so fortunate in my career to having a, just a, a wonderful relationship with the FBI, ATF, DEA, HSI. Um, and as, as I said, the Pennsylvania State Police. And, you know, I talk about the state police in terms of intelligence, in terms of tactics, in terms of enforcement strategies. Um, it requires constant communication. And, and as you said, it, uh, being open. Um, Comstat was a big part of that. And that's why Comstat was open to any law enforcement agency that was willing to attend. It could get long and tedious, uh, uh, probably because I get a long, little long-winded, but it was also an opportunity for us to, uh, you know, ex- externally with university, police departments, the housing authority, uh, other agencies with responsibilities in Philadelphia to share information with them and to get their input and ideas, but also allowed us to do so internally, meaning that the divisional detectives could be talking about shootings, homicide. The captain was in the room with his, his or her team um, so they could link up um, related incidents. The intelligence section was there giving us input. Um, and and I got to tell you, the one thing that I, I can't overstate the value of it was when I turned my chair and turned around uh, to the uh, lower ranking, but incredibly important people that sat in the room behind me. And, uh, uh, you know, I would get some incredible report outs from our, our analysts, the civilian and sworn. Um, and I never looked at, at rank in determining someone's the value that they could bring to the organization because um, these detectives, these civilian analysts would really break a situation down for us in the room. And then I would turn back around and then we could put together a strategic plan of action to, to address it moving forward. And knowing that in two, a week or two, we'd be back in the room uh, t- discussing whether we, we were successful on making what adjustments we had to, we had to make. So um, it involves the morning call every morning, speaking with the inspectors throughout the city about everything that happened in the previous 24 hour operational period and everything we planned to do in the next 24-hour operational period, um, the weekly shooting calls, uh, the huddle requires 
constant communication. Um, and, I, and that's one of the things that unfortunately, you know, I really took a hit during COVID since it wasn't, it wasn't feasible and safe to have a lot of in-person meetings. So on the positive side, I think we learned to make the most valuable use of, of Zoom. But I also think it's important to, to be in the same room together. It's just not the same being on a Zoom call, at, at least in my experience. I, I like to be in the room with my partners and, and having that person-to-person -person contact and, and making those ask. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, I think everybody would agree that leadership is a contact sport. So, yeah, Zoom is nice to to maybe extend some collaboration and communication. But in order to to really make things go, you you got to get out there on the on the street. Um, how how important was uh, although your your subordinate units were uh, answering to you via CompStat and 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 with other uh, internal processes and procedures you had in place, how did how did you as a leader at that strategic level as a as a deputy commissioner um, let those folks know they had the autonomy to run with whatever they needed to do to to get the job done? How how did you get to do that as a leader? Because I know. At the strategic level, sometimes we get so focused on one thing, we we find ourselves doing the job directly below us. But how did, how did you, what leadership tools did you use to give your folks the autonomy to carry on? Constant communication, um, positive reinforcement, and instilling in, in, in your folks the, the confidence of knowing that um, if they make a mistake, to trying hard to do the right thing, that you're going to be supportive of that and, and you're going to be grateful for that and, and you're going to help them get, get the whatever, whatever operation or what program, whatever goal you're trying to achieve back on track and getting them together in a room on a regular basis, um, letting them vent, um, letting them speak freely, encouraging them to speak freely. It, it's really, you have to ask if, if you want to hear what they have to say and when they when they speak um if they disagree with you you have to make them feel comfortable doing that i think for me i really made a concerted effort to, to surround myself with with people who uh had very strong opinions were very good at what they did the very diversified group of commanders um and definitely were not afraid to tell me they didn't agree with me or or they saw things a different way and to see my reaction when i would say uh, you know, I'm really interested to hear why and not be for me to have the confidence to say, yeah, I think you're right. I think that is a better idea than mine. Um, that, that, that goes an incredibly um, long way. And, and, and it's also important that when they have an event and, and, and they would like your participation and support when they're running a new initiative, whether it's a crime initiative or a community or initiative. You know, one of the things that I was always very careful about was. I didn't I didn't go to attend meetings and with the community um, or, or 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 other other groups uh, without an invite from the CEO. And the reason I, I, I did that was because once I arrived, I knew it would become my meeting and I didn't I didn't want to do that. And I would be usurping the, the captain's authority. Um, but when they needed me to be there for support, when they needed me to be there, maybe once a year so the community understood that the top level of the organization was aware of what was going on and cared 
uh, I made sure to get to really always attend and make myself available, um, even if it meant rearranging my schedule, because I knew that was important. But um, just what you said, not, not micromanaging people and uh, encouraging them to, to think freely and encouraging them to, to think originally and uh, understanding that just because the last captain did it that way doesn't mean it's the way that this captain should do it. Um, I really, I, I get excited about innovative ideas um, and that can, be, that can become, uh, that spreads, which is a good thing. And then next thing you know, you have young captains competing with each other to come up with the next innovative idea. And, and I think if you can generate that type of, of healthy competition, um, you know, it's, it's really important. And it, uh, it, 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 it benefits you in the long run and it benefits the department and the city. Yeah, yeah, that uh, that sense of drive, uh, you know, autonomy, mastery, purpose. That you know, hey, I, I, I'm running this this district the best I can do it, and here's some stuff that that's going to make it best for me. I want to take just a step back for for those uh, folks in the audience that might not be familiar with how big the Philadelphia Police Department actually is. Um, as and in your role as as deputy commissioner. You know, what was your span of control and, you know, how, how big is the, the Philly Police Department? Well, uh, how big is it? <laughs> I think that's something that I would like to know myself. I know right now the department is, is severely undermanned. And, and I think it's at, at the crisis point. Uh, when I was there, we had anywhere between 6,200 and 6,400 people. When I left, um, and that was just sworn, um, and a couple thousand of professional employees, uh, I commanded 4,600 sworn in and professional employees. I had uh, seven divisions, six were which were patrol divisions, and one, one was administrative division of specialized units. Um, 21 patrol districts, three mini stations, um, the PAL, um, 21 PAL facilities. Uh, it, it, it's an extremely large and complicated organization. And you have to remember that each of those police districts is like a police department. To be quite honest with you, most of the police districts in Philadelphia are larger than 90 percent of the police uh, departments in, in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, you know, I know in, in, in both in, in manpower and area. Um, so it's an enormous responsibility to be a district captain. And I, I always treated it like that. That was the premier position, and so did Commissioner Ross. I mean, we we made and you know, we learned that from Commissioner Ramsey um, that making sure that pro, that patrol was was seen as um, you know a, a premier assignment. It, it's incredibly important because it's a difficult assignment. It's a seven day a week assignment. It, your responsibility never stops. People are you know come being victimized in your district on a, on a never-ending basis and you're expected to address that and then you have the support of night command but still ultimately it's, it's your authority and and these captains are on the phone at three o'clock in the morning redeploying resources and responding to um what has occurred based on their on on their extensive knowledge of their of their district so um it's an extremely challenging assignment um so uh it's an it's a very large and complex department with a lot of moving parts and um that's why it's so important to have mechanisms like Comstat, Comstat and 
in the morning call and and regular staff meetings to to keep it all together. Wow, a lot of lots of moving pieces in a in a in a huge police department. Uh, go ahead, Pete. So while we're on the subject of of Comstat, um, this so so great conversation here. One one of the one of the key elements of one of the key one of the four key elements of Comstat, is, as we all know, is relentless follow up, and that that is actually uh, the the genesis of of the RF factor and the importance of that. So so Joe, um, you 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 have a Comstat. Uh, a, a problem is is identified. Um, like you said, you're getting feedback from your commanders as innovative ways to address that problem. But at some point, you all come together and decide on a course of action to solve that problem. Um, and and now everybody's going to raise their right hand and say, "Yep, I'm in, boss. I am in. I, I agree. This is where we're going." And then, as part of the re- relentless follow-up of comps, that um, someone or or some group is looking at whether all the commanders are actually doing what they said they were going to do. And at some point in time, it comes down to accountability. Do you have a story? Do you have a a scenario? We don't need the names, of course, but of of when that would happen. And yet someone said they were on board, but they weren't on board. And it just wasn't that they weren't getting the job done. And you were proving it through relentless follow up. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. Uh, and th- those stories are, are I'm, I'm proud to say, very rare. Because when you, when you go into that room, you, you know that you will be uncovered very, unmasked very quickly if you have not been adhering to the plan, if, if you had not been conducting your relentless follow-up, if you had not been on top of your supervisors, making sure that orders were being carried out, um, actions were being executed. Um, but when it did happen, um, and again, very rare, um, it would indicate that now, now, now let me be a hundred percent clear about something. There's many times when the captain or the inspector would come in and the results were, were not what, what was expected or and what was hoped for, but they were able to demonstrate that they had done everything in their power to, to, to make it happen. Well, fair and enough. And that falls back on me. Uh, as as the overall architect of the plan, and no one ever got punished or or moved because they were they were putting out 100 percent effort and and just didn't get the result that was hoped for. Uh, but those times when it was quite clear that the captain was just simply not on board, um, maybe just didn't you know not everybody is cut for patrol. Um, it's it's hard. Some people uh, are are not. It, it's difficult for them to make tough decisions that impact people um, to make tough dis- disciplinary uh, decisions when, when they're trying to hold people accountable. And in, in those cases, um, you know, eventually that, that resulted in, in another assignment. But I was so fortunate when I was there um, to have just incredibly dedicated captains that, and, and inspectors and chiefs that, that, that took pride. Um, and it, it really mattered to them. Um, they were very committed to the community. So they, they took things personally, um, and as they should. Whoever says 
that you shouldn't take it personal as should get in another business. Um, you're the captain of a district and, and innocent people are, are falling victim to, to gun violence or any type of violence. Um, you need to take it personal uh, and, and, and really be passionate about what you do and passionate about making sure that it doesn't happen again and finding the people that perpetrated that violence. And one of the really sad things right now is the fact that, you know, the department is, is, is so desperately undermanned that, I, you know, relentless follow-up is really not possible. You know, relentless follow-up is something that we all believe in since Bratton wrote, wrote the book, Turnaround, many years ago, which, you know, I probably read three times, um, you know, and we all believe in the importance of it. But in order to do it, you have to have the manpower available. Right now, we have, you know, homicide detectives in Philadelphia are carrying incredible caseloads far beyond. And it's not just Philadelphia. It's, it's, it's in other major cities where, you know, b- b- before a detective has the opportunity to really work a case, he, he or she's got another one coming through the door. They're getting, they're getting called out to another crime scene. And so it's, it, it's definitely the challenge that is facing police leaders in America today and in, in, in so many of our, our, our major American cities where they're just uh, having no luck in, in, in recruitment and um, not having any luck in retention. And there are two things we have to look at. You know, we, we have to really encourage officers to want to stay and we have to find ways to make policing attractive to young people today as a career option. And uh, that's I don't think there's a more pressing issue in police for policing right now. You know, Joe, um, I, I think we, we could all agree that it takes a balance of three things in law enforcement today or actually in, in, in any field. It takes people. Um, they have to be executing some efficient processes, and um, to make people more efficient and effective. Today's we depend heavily on it, on technology to do that. So people, processes, and technology, but it has to be in balance. I mean, you could you could um, uh, reinforce your people through technology to make them more efficient but you can't replace them with technology. And you've got to have that right balance. And what I hear you say is that um, the way things have gone in the last couple of years, the way law enforcement has lost people and not replaced people, um, that people element is, is just about, we've, we've cut out the fat and we're, we're hitting bone now. There, there's nowhere else, no more room to go. And we've got to replace them. I mean, we've got to build that up to get that proper balance established or else things aren't going to work right. No, absolutely. And the one thing that uh, there was a study done by PERF of departments that are not having a problem with retention or, or recruitment. And the one constant they found was uh, officers in those departments feel supported by their leaders and by city hall. And, and that's important if you want officers to work. They have to know that if, if they make a mistake or even if they don't make a mistake, but they become involved in an incident that and as we know, there there's no such thing as a pretty use of force. Uh, use of force is use of force. And even when it's legitimate, officers can find themselves, you know, be, being vilified for doing exactly what they should be doing it the way they should be doing it. So um, that has to change if we're going to draw people to, to this profession. Uh, as well as, I mean, we, we have to look at the profession itself. 
um, understand that this generation of potential new police officers are, uh, you know, they they look at the job differently. They they, they want to do a different type of job, and that, and that's a good thing, not a bad thing. They want to be more involved with the community. Uh, they are technologically savvy. They bring that to, to the job. And uh, you know, I was I was commanding a a, a barricaded incident one time, and uh, uh, we had a guy on, on a roof, and he had shot at police, uh, and that's why we were called. And you know. I can remember asking a, a an older officer to, to draw me a diagram of the interior because we were preparing in case we had to make entry. And very quickly, a younger officer brought the whole house up and, and on the real estate uh, a market that uh, had <laughs> the entire house. And you know, I just kind of laughed. This says, "Okay, well, I I feel stupid right now, but um, but thank you for that. That's fan. That's phenomenal. Um, but um." You know, so 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 that's a good thing, um, but we have to support them, uh, and they have to know that, and they have to know that they're not the enemy. Because the problem that we're really having now is with a lack of support from the community, with a community perception uh, that's negative of the police, and a community perception that the criminal justice system, including the police, but the entire system, is dysfunctional. It is is causing people not to cooperate, not to come forward. And I've had people tell me straight out. I mean, if I call 911 about the guy with the gun selling drugs in my corner and yeah, I see you come out and arrest him and he's back out there the next night with another gun selling more drugs. Why am I getting involved? I, 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 I don't want you tracking my phone number and asking me if I'm the one to call the police. I, 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 I don't. What's the point? People are just going to be back out there. So. Of course, there's a lot that law enforcement has to do, and and, and I think we've recognized that as as a profession uh, to earn and and build the trust of the community and and to work more closely with the community. We have changes that we need to make, and we are making. Um, but it's not just us; it's the entire system. And the, you know, and I'm talking about our prosecutors and our judges. And again, we must all accept the fact that there's a small group of people that are bad and dangerous people and they need to be taken off the street. Uh, of course, we want to, we want to uh, utilize diversion. And, I, and of course, we want to look at the people's, the drivers of, of petty crimes like drug addiction and, and mental health and poverty. And we don't want to put people in jail for those type of things. But I'm talking about that core group of individuals that are contributing to, in, in some cities, you can have 10 or 15% of your worst criminals responsible for 60 to 70% of your violent crime. And then I, I refuse to accept the fact that reform means uh, allowing them to re- remain on the street. Mm-hmm. There was a homicide overnight in the Roxborough section of Philadelphia. And uh, that gentleman had been arrested for carrying a gun illegally. Uh, with plenty of previous priors uh, under his belt. He, he had been arrested on the 24th and was out of jail in less than 24 hours. And now he's dead. So I, I don't understand how that um, even helped him when he's certainly someone that should have been held in based on his previous criminal record um, pending trial. Um, so I, I, we have to look at the whole system. And that includes the police, but it's not limited to the police. I, I, think, I think that um, you've hit on a very key point there. That uh, that that is is almost universal uh, in in law in in law enforcement uh, in law enforcement challenges today. I had to, I don't want to say problems in law enforcement challenges. And and before we started today, I had asked you a question about 
uh, 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 red light cameras. And I and 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 it was a side conversation, and it really was just icebreaker conversation. And you told me that the cameras are okay, but the whole system has to be there. In other words, if 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 it's got a paper license plate that nobody could read because it's been out in the weather and it's flapping around, um, the cameras not going to identify the car, so they could go through all the damn red lights they want. So the whole the whole system has to be there if, if the person is a that doesn't have a registration or it's a stolen car or whatever the red light camera is is it going to have very much impact and i think that that simple conversation on that red light camera really brings us to this larger issue of that there is a criminal justice system and the police are at perhaps at the front end the tip of the spear because a whole other system that has to work the way it's supposed to work for for everyone to be successful and i think that's what you've hit upon and it's a big problem today and i think that the people of philadelphia who've listened to you a few minutes ago talk about the dedication of your commanders and 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 and, and all of the good work they were doing and the, and, and their attitudes and everybody was aligned I think they should be proud of that. But I, I think that what needs to be examined is, is the whole criminal justice system working the way it's supposed to. Because at the end of the day, everybody blames the tip of the spear. No, absolutely. And, you know, towards the end of my career, it, it, it became harder and harder. And I had to be certainly a, a lot more patient with my commanders at Comstat, because when when, when their officers are setting, um, making record-breaking numbers of arrests for illegal firearms possession, and I'm talking about previously convicted felons, drug dealers, um, people with extensive criminal records and prior VUFAs, violation of Uniform Firearms Act, and they're not being held, they're on probation or parole. Detainers are not being lodged. They're being released on little or no bail. Um, they're not being properly charged. How do I hold them accountable? I mean, they are doing their job, but but it, but someone it's someone else's job to make sure that these individuals remain in jail and that when when, when they are convicted, that well, first of all, that that, that they, we take it to trial. We don't offer plea deals that allow them to plead out to a misdemeanor and walk out on non-reporting probation. Um, or the, the case is just not prosecuted, and then and then expect to hold. I can't just hold them accountable uh, at that point uh, when the system is failing them and, and failing the people of Philadelphia. So one of the things I always stress was we need to do our job. Um, we we can't worry about the well. We do have to worry about it, but we we don't stop doing the right thing because someone else is not doing the right thing. We have to continue to to fight the good fight, but. You know, at the same time, it becomes very demoralizing when you're trying to follow the precepts of, of criminologists like Thomas App, who, who teaches these very same concepts that um, we, we, we don't want to return to the days of mass incarceration. And that's why we take this data-driven, intelligence-based approach and we identify that 10% that's doing 60 to 70% of the crime. And we focus on on them, and that's why we focus on those places. And uh, look at what 
Chief Garcia is doing in, in Dallas, where you know he's broken this city down into thousands of of, of little uh, um, plates, if you will, um, because he, where he's able to uh, done con- where, where he's done concentration maps that enabled him to tell him where the crime is happening, what's driving it, who's doing it, and then put the resources there. And that's why Dallas is bucking the national trend. And again, violence has continued to decline in cities like Dallas that have taken this approach. But I will say that, you know, the chief, uh, and you can see this on social media, you know, he has the 100% support of his mayor. He has the support of city city council. He has the funding that he requests because this requires resources. Um, Dallas did not defund, it did not cancel police academy classes. And these are some of the things that happened in Philadelphia. And it's, it, it's really come back to have a bad impact on, on, on the city um, by having a bad impact on the department. The, the department is bleeding experienced officers. And we talked about what I, you know, I do business development now, which means that I get the opportunity to go around and, and, and speak to a lot of my old colleagues and, in, in almost every meeting, I, they start out by thanking me for all the fine officers that they recruited from Philadelphia uh, because, you know, you know, officers just do not feel supported. They don't feel secure um, and, and they don't feel confident. And morale is at a, a really disturbing level. Uh, it, it, it pains me personally to see um, how far morale is, has dropped. And, and that's at every rank. It's, it's not just at the police officer rank. So now you have dangerously low levels of manpower, which means there's a very little proactive policing as possible. It's just enough to try to keep up with 9-11 emergency calls. And again, it, it, it infiltrates the entire agency. You have detectives with unmanageable caseloads not being able to do that relentless follow-up, not being able to really investigate cases they, the way they would like to. And, and as ATF investigators, you know, you, you know how much you enjoy putting the pieces of the puzzle together. And if that was just taken away from you and you just became pretty, pretty much a glorified typist, um, you know, that, that, that really takes away from your morale and your job satisfaction. And again, it, it, it leads to really talented, valuable people that are looking for opportunities elsewhere. So something has to be done to stop that bleeding in, in Philadelphia and other cities. And, and, and uh, would you agree that that's something else that has to be done? I, I think it's I think it's unfair that that to think that the police have to work themselves out of this problem. I, I believe the, the people, the citizens have to work this out, out of this problem. And, 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 you know, Robert Robert Kennedy once said that. Um, Society gets the type of criminal that they deserve. But what is equally true is they get the type of law enforcement that they insist upon. And I, and I think that what he was trying to say is that um, police are the people, people are the police, like Sir Robert Peel said. And the people need to hear what you've just said. Because this is not only affecting the Philadelphia Police Department, but many across the United States. And, and the people have to speak up. The citizens of these cities have to speak up. And if their police aren't being supported, they need to insist upon the, the powers to be in that city to make that happen. 
Anybody no, agree? Absolutely disagree. Correct. The only the, the only way out of this problem now is that responsibility lies with the public. Um, that they demand the, that policies change. That they are, they demand that listen. They have every right to expect the police department to be held accountable for its officers to be held accountable. Uh, I, I think you can say that that's being done in Philadelphia. But by the same token, um, it's not just the police, the entire system and every facet of the system and the persons leading those facets have to be held accountable for the decisions they're making and the, and the impact that they're having. And in Philadelphia, the negative impact of a dysfunctional criminal justice system is falling almost entirely on poor communities of color. Um, they're the ones bearing the, the brunt and, and very heavily on juveniles. We just lost an, another child to gun violence. A young man, 15 years old, who was just carrying a case of water across the street, hit with uh, uh, iron gunfire. Um, it's, that, it's just absolutely heartbreaking as a parent to watch his father um, be interviewed on the news. And uh, I, 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 I often wonder where is the outrage um, within the public to say enough is enough. Um, I, I hope that that comes soon. I don't know how much worse it's going to get. You know, the thing that bothers me is that Philadelphia in 2021 set an all-time record for homicides. But I think that's a, it's an even more disturbing um, statistic when you look at the fact that Philadelphia had more homicides than and continues to have more homicides than New York City. Philadelphia is a city of 1.5 million. New York City is 8 million. Wow. More homicides than Los Angeles. Now that's what should uh, really disturb people when you break it down per capita wow. and realize just how bad the situation is. That's amazing. Um, so Joe, the, the couple things uh, that I, that I think are super interesting uh, that you had mentioned, and uh, I want to go back to the recruitment and retention phase, because I think uh, officer wellness and resilience plays into into such a big part of that um and so uh certainly officers uh no matter where they're at in the chain of command are responsible for their own wellness and resiliency but what what does or what should um an organization do along those lines uh because i think uh resiliency among among our officers is a is a leadership issue how how did you in Philadelphia address that, if at all, or if if you were back in the game, how would you do that, knowing what you know now? I think the way I think if I was if I was back there now, I mean it's really important that they they see um, their leaders on the street. I felt one of the things that um, I was successful at it was always important to me during during significant events that that I oversaw that. That I was at the front on the front line, that I was actively engaged, uh, that I was engaging with the officers, um, making sure that they had clear direction, they understood what the objective for the day was, they understood the rules of engagement, um, and they saw that I was out there and, and enforcing those and, um, and 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 just encouraging them, um, and that was something that uh, you know at the end of a of a large event like the Fourth of July or. I mean, a large dem anti-police demonstration, and I probably shook a uh, hundred or more hands before I went home. Uh, 
it seems like something insignificant, but it's really not. And we know as long as cops and we'll, we all say we could care less, but we all do. Um, or, or just coming over the radio to, to thank the, the officers that you weren't able to personally engage with, um, sending out notes. Um, you know, we had two, uh, two of our greatest officers were, were, were shot by the individual that committed a murder inside Jefferson Hospital. And, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I, I sent notes or, or made phone calls to those two officers or officers like them for, for having an outstanding arrest. And, uh, you know, again, doing what they always do. Uh, they, they saw the guy, the U-Haul truck that the murderer was escaping in. And when he engaged him, he fired on them with a, a two, two, three. And the one officer has suffered uh, severe, severe and longstanding injuries. Um, so, and you never know when that's going to happen. So uh, taking every opportunity you can to recognize individual behavior and do it individually, like a phone call um, and changing culture. You know, so many times I, I, I would read an amazing job that happened overnight and, and it was a situation where clearly deadly force would, would have been justified out, uh, under under the law and under department policy. But, you know, officers just took the moment they needed to to rethink, reassess, recalibrate um, and utilize, uh, you know, the, the time proven uh, um, tactics of, of of time, distance, and talk, and they were able to resolve a situation. And you know, you get a phone call from me, and you know, when my when my aide was ma- making the phone call, um, you know, the first question the officer would have: "Am I in trouble?" Um, but, <laughs> so, so it's important that you know they begin to learn that uh, they get calls from from the uh, executive level, not when they're in trouble, but when they've done something extremely well, because they tell. They're going to tell 100 other officers that, that you called and you did that. And, and, and that really has an impact to your organization. They remember that and they remember it the next time they're in a similar situation and say, hey, I think I should do it the same way again. Um, and, and, it, and it's the example that you set. But also when you have a critical incident, I mean, you know, I, I was so lucky to work in, you know, under both Rich Ross and, and, and we both worked under the great Charles Ramsey. You know, I learned so much from him. And, you know, when you have a critical incident, you don't try to identify particular officers and say, I think he or she should go to, to counseling. You send everybody to counseling. And you take the stigma out. Uh, everybody went and, and everyone, all everybody, all anyone knows is that everyone went. Nobody knows if someone decided to go back again on their own. And many times an officer will. And then, of course, you know, you look at other issues about, you know, doing what you can to try to reduce auto accidents. You know, we had some really, really egregious auto accidents where, you know, officers with the with the best of intention, you know, drove in a manner they shouldn't have trying to get to an emergency, trying to trying to get to a citizen in need. But um, they can't. And, and, you know, I have to make sure that everyone had to watch that video. I want every one of you to see that video, not because I want to embarrass anyone or not because I'm mad or I'm angry, but because I'm scared to death and I, that I'm going to lose an officer. Uh, and I don't want to I don't want to let that happen. And, and the least thing I can do is try to make everyone understand why this is such a big deal. Um, so watch this video and think about that the next time that you have to hit the lights and sirens. So I think it's a, it's a combination of everything. An officer gets hurt. Seriously, you know, you know you, you, if you can't get to the hospital, you need to get on the phone. Make sure that they're aware that the deputy knows they've been injured. The deputy cares. The deputy's calling to make sure they're getting the treatment they deserve. If they're not, there'll be a captain walking through the door at any second to make sure that changes. Um, 
these things are, are really vitally important and it, it, it impacts the way they look at the organization. So, so Joe, when, when you were, were getting ready to, uh, to deploy uh, teams of, uh, of uniform officers at an anti-police demonstration, what were, type, what were some of the type of things you would tell them at the, at the pre-briefing? Well, obviously that uh, we would make sure everyone knew who they were working for and everyone knew what their assignment was, uh, what the objective was, make sure they knew that our goal was to, uh, to be prepared to walk a lot and, and, a, and a long time, for a long time, and that we weren't going to respond to any type of uh, Virgil, verbal agitation that we were, would focus on acts of violence or acts of vandalism, that it wouldn't be tolerated uh, and to only act upon the direction of a supervisor. And again, I think everyone will agree I was out there. Um, my feet will never be the same. Um, they weren't too good to start with. Um, but, but that was really important. And, uh, you know, um, you know, the, the one time we were with the, the, the one line is saying, if you will, besides no violence and, and property damage was you know, we were not going to allow protesters on to the highway 676, 76 or 95. And it's not because we were trying to make some type of a, of a point. Uh, it's because it wasn't safe. It wasn't safe for them. It wasn't safe for the motors. Um, those roadways were used to transport critically old patients to the many of a to the many amazing trauma centers in Philadelphia, including Hanneman uh, for many years, that was right at the Vine Street off ramp. Um, so it was just something that we, that we couldn't allow to happen. And, uh, you know, the one day for protecting Vine, Broad and Vine, I, I took a bucket in the mouth. And, you know, when you, you get a split lip, you look, you look like you're a victim of a gunshot, um, yeah, right. and, you know, but, but, you know, it made a difference that uh, I was there and I was in the fray. And uh, I continued the rest of the night and we would just walk them. Um, and I think sometimes my officers wanted to kill me um, because they wanted me to shut it down. But it, it just wasn't worth it wasn't worth the fight. You know, even though it took a lot out of us at the end of the day, we wore them out. We, we had no arrest. We had no property damage a couple of times. I mean, you know, there were some extraordinary incidents. But for the most part, we'd end the night with no arrest, no property damage. Um, and we we get some great press. Um, I always let them know that I, I would I, I was going to keep the press at the front of the line as much as possible, even when we were making an arrest, because it was critically important to me. Because to be quite honest with you, they truly were our best witness uh, to the fact that we were doing our job the the right way, the way we were supposed to be doing it. And uh, as I always said, they they kept both sides honest. And everybody behaved. Yeah. yeah so. Uh, uh, very proud of of the way that we respected the First Amendment, uh, but at the same time protected the city. Um, many times I got criticized on the you know, certain radio talk shows the next morning because of the disruption of traffic. But you know, my my my, opinion, my strong opinion and was and still is that you know the expression of the First Amendment is is, is more important than more disruption of traffic. Um, but you know, when they started to interfere with businesses, we, we, we took action immediately. So it was, it was important. We, we, we were able to maintain, uh, a, a, a distant, but still some, somewhat of a cooperative relationship. And we kind of knew each other's boundaries. And, uh, you know, we have a civil affairs unit that, it, that just does incredible work. And, um, I think we perfected the use of bicycles in, in protest maintenance and, um, 
you know, we never had to resort to the use of uh, chemical agents and, and things of that nature, which I'm very proud of. And I can assure you those things were, were there. And as I told you before, uh, so were a whole bunch of, of my brothers and sisters in the Pennsylvania State Police. And uh, that, certainly get, that certainly gave me an awful lot of confidence when I, I was marching around knowing that I had that support if needed. And, um, and the work they did um, by my side during the DNC, I could never be more grateful to them for, um, for the, their professionalism and, and their willingness to always help the city. So go ahead. Uh, go ahead, George. We got uh, I think we're winding down in the last uh, two minute warning here. Yeah, I, I just wanted to, uh, to, touch, to to close the loop on this. Um, you had a long and distinguished career uh, with the Philadelphia Police Department for those uh, young and up and up and coming uh, future leaders that are out there that uh, that may be listening to the show. What? advice on what type of training, what schools they should try to get to, would you recommend to uh, the, the aspiring law enforcement leader? What, where or what they, what training should you think is essential for a budding leader in law enforcement? I'm definitely a proponent of, uh, at minimum, uh, um, an associate's degree. Uh, but I think that you know, it doesn't have to be in criminal justice. Uh, you you want to learn skills that uh, help you be a good communicator. Certainly take courses that teach you cultural awareness um, so you have a better understanding of, of the cultures of other people and where they came from, a basic understanding uh, of psychology. And uh, to be quite honest with you, uh, I also really recommend a background in in the mixed martial arts, not not so that you can hurt someone, but um, you know I know the the Gracie Fighters are a prime example of an, an organization that teaches law enforcement uh, and teaches law enforcement officers how to control a situation until help arrives um, by controlling a person uh, in a way that's not going to seriously harm them. I think there's an awful lot that can be gained from that, and there's an awful lot that law enforcement. Uh, can learn from that. Work on your writing skills. That's certainly a problem in the profession right now. It's so important that you be, you know how to document your actions and the actions of others and that you understand that. And then as we talked before, certainly basic computer skills. It, it's really unbelievable how this profession has grown and progressed technologically since I came on the job um, with becoming a, a paperless profession. Um, it's great. It, it's, it's absolutely amazing. So um, uh, just to be a, a, a well-rounded person, someone that likes to engage with folks, one of the things that really used to disappoint me is sometimes I would hear from the community when we would put young, young officers out of the academy out on, on footbeats in the community to, 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 for, for a positive outcome, and then they would say that the, the officers didn't say hello. Um, you know, that's something we really had to go back to, to our training curriculum and work on because it's so important. So we want people that want to engage with the public in a positive way, uh, but, but also we're understanding there's some serious problems out there that have to be addressed in a very serious way. Great advice. Great advice. Good stuff. Joe Sullivan for mayor. Governor. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Pete. Uh, we'll turn this back over to uh, Mr. Ray. 
Joe, thanks for thanks for coming on. Great conversation. Um, Pete, do you have any any closing uh, closing remarks? Well, in my uh, Machiavelli and the Prince asked the Prince, "Is it better to be loved or feared?" So, Joe, I'll ask you: Is it better to be loved or feared as a police commander? Hmm. I think respected. I, I, I think there were a lot of people that loved me. I think there were people that did it. But especially after I left, I think there were um, many of the people. I, th- I think a lot more people would say that they respected the fact that um, that I, I, I demonstrated leadership, that, that I was visible, uh, that I was very present on scene. As I like to say, um, officers don't need you to stand beside them. They need you to stand shoulder to shoulder with them. And I think that's what I tried to do. Great answer. Good answer. Good answer. All right, fellas. It's been a blast. It really has. Enjoyed it. Anytime. Excellent. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night, fellas.